If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. We are now unofficially in summer. It's good to have three great months ahead of us. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer back after a Memorial Day weekend. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Atassi. I hope you all got to relax over the long weekend. Absolutely. It was yesterday was gorgeous. I mean, you couldn't ask for a nicer day. Yeah, really, the weather all... wasn't as bad as we thought, right? It turned After out like Saturday. Got better <laughs> in a hurry. The tree snapped in my yard on Friday, yeah. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I think I'm a little too relaxed, so, you know, you guys are going to have to nudge me a little bit. Yeah, here. we'll have to pump it up. And we have a four-day week to get everything done in, so let's begin. Why does Kevin McTaggart, a legendary Cleveland mobster tied to seven murders decades ago, think he should be released from prison early? Laura Johnston, John Caniglia did a story that lots of people read this weekend because he did such a good job telling the tale. What's going on with Mr. McTaggart of the Danny Green era? Yeah, this is fascinating. Don't you know that McTaggart is a reformed man, and that's why he thinks that he should be released. I did not know this name off the top of my head. It's not as familiar as Danny Green, but he served as Green's close ally. He McTaggart was convicted in 1983 of racketeering and other charges for this role in a drug ring that was led by Carmen Zagaria. He was an associate of the Cleveland Mafia family. Authorities linked the ring to seven slayings, and McTaggart was sentenced to life in prison without parole. He was never convicted of murder, but he played a role in all of these. Now he's 64, making the case to get out. Even a judge and Bernie Kosar are encouraging it. What I what I appreciated in John's story is he tracked down Rocco Pelutro. He mm-hmm. was police chief back when I was covering crime, believe it or not. And, and, and he was a, he was a cop's cop. He was respected by everybody, real law and order guy, brave. I mean, he walked out of a building one time with a live bomb that had been placed. I mean, just one of those guys that, that was a leader. And, and he had the kind of perspective that I think was needed. It's like, okay, okay. Yes, he's reformed. That's one element, but there are other elements here. I mean, this is a guy that was tied to seven murders and was sent away for the rest of his life should he ever get out. And you can tell there's some queasiness here, a tough decision for the judge, because what about all the family members of the victims? That, right. That and there, there is a family member who stepped forward who's like, I never thought we'd have to have the discussion. He got life without parole. Um, I loved that Rocco Pelutro named some of the other people he was uh, in business with, including this guy named Doc because he was named that because of the way he dismembered his victims' bodies. I mean, that that visual right there. But um, talk about the reform. Apparently, he's helped 
McTaggart helped save a psychologist after an attack in a Memphis lockup. He worked to extinguish a fire in a cafeteria and, get this, organized a candy sale to benefit a home for needy children. So even uh, Donna Congeni Fitzsimmons, she's a Rocky River Municipal Court judge who in 1982 prosecuted him, is for him getting released. She said, I never, never observed any inmate compile such a pristine and logic-defying institutional record. And Kozar says he can come live on his farm. But but seven murders. I know. I, I mean, it's it's... When you talk about, you know, in the death penalty debate, it's always the death penalty is expensive, but we can lock them up for the rest of their lives when they do heinous crimes. This isn't a heat of the moment murder. This isn't some flash of temper. This was serious mobster stuff. And should anybody who's convicted of that get out? I, right. I, I, and this, can I say something here? Yeah. Jane Cahoon. He, w- he was not convicted of murder, which Laura said, which I thought was, I never realized that. I mean, I'm old enough to remember a lot of these names like Grau and, um, but I, you know, does he have like a technicality here that he can raise? He, he was not convicted of murder. No, but think- he was sentenced to life because of all of his different roles. What I think is really interesting is this idea of, you know, the reason for prison. And no one's arguing that they think he's dangerous, that they think he's going to get out and do anything to harm anyone again. But it's that issue, like, just because you've reformed yourself, that doesn't negate what you did. Yeah, it's a it's a great story. And this is one where Judge Adams is earning his pay because... (laughs) I, it, what do you do? You know, I mean, and Bernie Kosar, it just get, added the wacko element to this story. It's like, in, in addition to everything else, Bernie Kosar will put him up because he believes in him. And you're like, how does that come to pass? <laughs> anyway, good stuff. Check out John's story on Cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did we find when we asked the question about whether the planned Peloton factory in Ohio is a sign of good things to come for the state? Jane Cahoon, Pete Cross put together a marvelous story for the weekend that looked at this, and there's all sorts of good news in that story. <laughs> yeah, I, I like the way one business leader put it. He said, next time Ohio gets something like this, it won't be coincidence. Uh, he, Pete found out that Ohio is in a pretty good position to to capitalize on the desires of businesses now to establish more reliable domestic supply chains. That was a lesson they learned from the pandemic when it became difficult or, you know, impossible to get supplies shipped here from overseas. And uh, a a number of companies are, are now looking to manufacture here in the United States rather than just rely on Asia and all these uncertainties involved with global trade that, you know, rising transportation costs, political turmoil, just inability to get goods. So economic development officials say, you know, the state has a lot of things going for it that bode well for for adding to its manufacturing base, including available land, close proximity to much of the country's population, good railroad access, and, you know, of course, our manufacturing heritage here in Ohio. And um, Pete, Pete found some examples of this already happening. For instance, there's this company called Atlantic Tool and Die. They supply auto parts and they're closing a plant in China entirely and returning some of their manufacturing to Ohio where they already have some some plants. They have Honda in Marysville as a major customer. So that move already added about 25 jobs and they're looking to add 45 more. So um, 
you know, one of one of the these economic de- um, development officials noted that it's still cheaper to to make goods in China, but when you factor in all these additional costs of just getting the products here, it's not necessarily a savings anymore. So, you know, as you said, this is this is pretty good news for Ohio. Well, it's just if you go back 10, 12 years ago when people were thinking, what is Ohio's future? What is the economy going to be based on? Because manufacturing is dried up. It's the whole idea of the Rust Belt. We're all all these Midwestern states that relied on manufacturing are big trouble. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, that's like a major promise for Ohio is to get into manufacturing and all the benefits of it because of the pandemic. It's fascinating, uh, this trend. I mean, I was surprised to see the other company that had already worked to shutter its China factory because of Mm -hmm. all these problems. So if Ohio plays it right, they should be in competition now for everybody that wants to bring supply chains back here. And we are ideally situated transportation wise and clean water wise. So it's a, it's a cool story. The one guy was um, just saying that, uh, you know, he, they want to be close to their customers. He he noted that, you know, here we are in the age of Amazon that where people, customers want their stuff right away. And so, you know, hence the problem there with, with the pandemic that, I mean, was really exacerbated by that. So they, they want to stay close to their customers. Well, it's still bad. There are a whole bunch of products that if you go to buy them now, you, you get a thing that says, yeah, that might be here in six months. I mean, it's just been, I, I wonder how long it takes to finally recover from that because it's it's still a big issue. Check out the story by Pete Krause on cleveland.com. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What have we learned from the virtual meetings that city councils in Ohio have had since the beginning of the pandemic? Leila Tassi, Bob Higgs was like the Iron Man of journalism last week. Every 10 minutes, it felt like he was publishing another story. <laughs> but this is one of the best. It's a fascinating look at what has happened and what we've learned from the pandemic about civic participation. Yeah, this was I, I thought he did a great job on this. It, it turns out that the public interest in the meetings of our local city councils is at an all-time high since most governments switched to using virtual meeting platforms like Zoom to conduct public meetings and archiving them on host sites like YouTube so viewers could access them at their leisure. So, for example, in Cleveland, before the pandemic, if you wanted to sit in on a city council public safety committee meeting, for example, you'd have to go to City Hall or you could watch it on TV20, which would be streamed online, but it would be televised while the meeting is in progress. So if you weren't available to watch it during that time, you couldn't see it. And the weekly Monday evening city council of the whole, where they actually pass legislation, that was never televised or recorded. So you typically see maybe half a dozen people at those meetings, at committees. Sometimes no one would show up, but the people scheduled to present before the council. So now every single meeting is live streamed and archived on YouTube and YouTube keeps data on viewership. So it's not unusual to see over 100 views on a committee hearing. Now, the tricky thing is that the state's open meeting law uh, doesn't permit virtual meetings. The General Assembly had to pass legislation at the start of the pandemic to allow those meetings to take place online. And that permission is set to expire July 1st. The Ohio Municipal League is trying to get that permission extended at least through the end of the year, especially considering that many city halls haven't made plans to reopen yet. But, you know, it's important to note that city councils like Cleveland, for example, are are eager to get back to in-person meetings. But Council President Kevin Kelly told Bob that he's 
He's really uplifted by the increased public engagement that virtual meetings has brought. And he'd really like to find ways to carry that forward, even as they return to in-person meetings. Uh, so I thought this was this was an angle that Bob picked up on that we hadn't really thought about. I mean, we I guess this really wasn't on anyone's radar, even even City Council President Kevin Kelly. Uh, hadn't really been thinking about the fact that this was going to expire soon and that they'd have to come up with another way to uh, to host their meetings when City Hall at the time when Bob was talking to them hadn't hadn't decided to reopen yet. Uh, of course, since then, we know that there will be uh, uh, City Hall will be reopening uh, in, in a limited capacity. But just really fascinating stuff. He has a sidebar with some hilarious anecdotes from uh, the, <laughs> all the mayhem of what goes on and during during zoom meetings so everyone should check it out it's great well the, the fact that kevin kelly got a coffee cup that basically says you're on mute yeah, uh, I know. Unmute yourself. <laughs> and that is that is the line of the year is you're on mute you're on mute. i know right nope, you're on mute I mean, how and all those stories about about council council members leaving their you know wherever they were they were zooming from to to walk around their neighborhoods or driving their cars in the middle of committee hearings i can see why why kevin feels like you know, it's been quite distracting and he'd like to bring everybody back to the in-person uh, meeting hall. But but if you bring everybody back, how do you create the same atmosphere on the screen? Because one of the things that I think was appealing about watching it on the screen is everybody was on screen or most of them were on screen. Whereas if you go back into the way they did it just on TV 20, you don't get the whole that feeling you don't get that hollywood squares feeling do they have to put a camera on each person so that they can create that so that people uh, are familiar with it but or do you think you... that's the appeal of the of watching it on zoom i i mean i don't know i when i've watched those meetings i didn't feel like i got anything extra by watching them in that format i think it was just fantastic that you could go to youtube and and upload any meeting that you wanted that they were all archived and you could watch them at any time. Um, but it's sad that you could do that already through the Channel 20 website, and uh, nobody was. Yeah, it was tr- it, it, There was, at least in my time covering City Hall, which, okay, it's been a few years, but you'd have to go and take a $5 money order to get a copy of whatever <laughs> meeting you want. <laughs> you couldn't even bring cash. You had to get a money order. I mean, it was it was a hassle. So, um, I don't know. Wow. It's, okay. It's, uh, yeah. Well, it's it's one of the benefits of the pandemic is it showed city councils how they can have more civic engagement. We'll be interesting to see if they maintain that. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is the Cuyahoga County Jail at another critical point for danger because of its inability to attract and keep jail guards on staff? Laura Johnson, we had a story last week about how some trash companies are having a hard time finding people, and so trash isn't getting picked up. Now we, we're seeing jail guard issues, pretty much vital services that, mm-hmm. that communities rely upon to carry us forward are going wanting. Yeah, absolutely. This is the same issue it's plaguing a lot of industries. People don't want the jobs for the wages those jobs pay. And staffing decreased from a high of 705 officers in February of 2020 to 639 officers this week. And the budgeted amount of 725. I don't know when the last time they were actually at that number. But this is happening as inmate population is growing. It rose above 1,500 for the first time since September. And so these inmate assaults on officers are actually increasing. So think about that. I mean, the staffing is going down while the numbers are going up. And then you're having 
morale among jail staff just dropping and assaults going up. I mean, it's just a vicious cycle where why would you want that job? The lower the jail staff gets, the worse it gets for both the prisoners and the guards. Officers are more likely to call off. And then that in turn makes coworkers forced into working overtime. So then they want to call off. Apparently, there are a lot of officers calling in sick during the NFL draft because they weren't allowed to park downtown, which is something I didn't think about at all. And inmates are becoming more defiant. So 27 staff assaults since the beginning of the year. Yeah, this is this is bad. But I think it also gets into the idea that wages are low. Mm -hmm. We keep seeing that, that people don't want to go back to work for these low wages. And a jail guard is a high pressure job. you're, You're constantly on guard against getting attacked and you're responsible for the lives of a whole bunch of people, you're going to get second guessed every time something goes wrong. And it's a congregate living situation, right? Where diseases are going to run rampant still during COVID. And the pay isn't, isn't great. So I, I, it's not surprising, but something's going to have to be done or we're going to end up in another trend where people start to die there. So there is a union that represents these corrections guards. So the county wanted to raise the pay for new hires so they could recruit more. And the union pushed back against that. I mean, it makes sense. Why hire new people more than experienced people? So, right. If they're willing to pay new people more, let's pay everyone more. And I mean, I'm not sure what happened with reducing the jail population. Obviously, when COVID started, they got everybody, not everybody, a lot of people out very quickly in order to make it safer. So why do we have this growing jail population? Why can't we keep more people out on on bond? Right. Right. That's the that's when they got it down to whatever it was, eleven hundred and proved they could do it. The question was, why don't you always do it? It saves money and you don't see a whole bunch of people failing to appear for court. It's almost lazy. It's almost like they don't put the time and energy in to keep the jail population down. And as it goes up, you're it's a powder keg. And if you don't have enough guards to do it. You're locking them down again in their red zones. It's just this. And is... if you can't hire enough guards, it would seem that the uh, one easier solution would be to reduce the population and everybody would be happier with that, the inmates included. And raise the pay. American yeah, pay is so low now. It's time to raise wages to give people a fair shot. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Northeast Ohio Republicans vote in the battle in Congress over whether to have a bipartisan investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol? Jane Cahoon, Rob Portman surprised us, didn't he? <laughs> yes, he he's now one of only uh, three Republicans in Congress who and Ohio Republicans in Congress who broke with their party on this issue of creating this bipartisan commission to investigate the riot with with the goal of making sure something like that never happens again. So Portman was one of only six Republicans in the whole Senate who voted to proceed with debate on this measure. It was not the actual vote to create it. Uh, the Senate vote was 54 to 35 in favor of going ahead with the debate. And you know, in a normal legislative body, that that would be enough. But as we know, the way things work in the Senate, that majority was not enough. They needed 60 votes. So the Republican minority successfully filibustered this and I think essentially killed it. But Portman issued a statement after the vote that that called the attack on the Capitol an attack on democracy itself. But he clarified that that he would have backed the commission creation only if there were what he called common sense changes to ensure that it's totally nonpartisan, including making sure that the staff 
isn't chosen through a partisan process. And uh, apparently he had received some assurances from the Senate Democratic leader, Chuck Schumer, that that he'd allow a vote on an amendment that would have made those changes. But we, as I said, we never we never got there. Uh, so anyway, uh, and then when this came up in the House earlier, we had two Northeast Ohio Republicans who um, crossed over and joined the Democrats, and that was Dave Joyce of Bainbridge Township and Anthony Gonzalez of Rocky River, who, as we know, Gonzalez voted uh, for impeachment of former President Donald Trump. But, um, you know, the, re- the Republicans' argument on this, for the most part, is that this independent commission isn't needed. It's redundant and and it would be used as a political weapon by Democrats against Republicans. And um, so they just appear to be kind of looking at politics in the next election on this. Yeah, these are the same Republicans that are trying to convince people, despite what they saw with their own eyes, that what happened on January 6th was just a little bit of unruliness. It wasn't anything like an insurrection. You shouldn't use the word insurrection which is just preposterous because we all saw what happened and people right. died and we saw people yeah, smashing you know, doors. And, just... and you had the mother of the Capitol police officer who died after the attack, you know, just pleading with these senators to, to do this, you know, and it was, I, I, it was really sad. It was good to see some Ohio Republicans though vote their conscience instead of going with the party line. It would be nice if we could see, more of that, especially in the race for the Senate to replace Rob Portman. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. On the eve of the anniversary of the George Floyd protest that became a riot in Cleveland, a bunch of people sued Cleveland police and the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office over excessive force allegations. Leila Tassi, what do they say? Well, 15 people are, are making these claims against Cleveland police and the Sheriff's Office in two separate lawsuits filed in federal court. One woman said police officers and jail staff illegally held her in the Cuyahoga County Jail for six days without charges. Officers pepper sprayed two women protesting peacefully and put one in plastic zip handcuffs that were so tight that it left her with nerve damage in her wrist, she says. And police shot a couple with less lethal munitions as they just walked down the street. And two people arrested downtown the day after the protest say officers falsely arrested them illegally searched them and held them in jail for several days. So to quote one of the complaints, it says, although police knew about the protests well in advance, police were woefully unprepared and hostile toward protesters. Now they must account for their indiscriminate use of force and their rampant, sloppy and illegal arrests of people who were not engaged in criminal activity and were not given any opportunity to leave. And that really just nails it. In case anyone needs a refresher, this is when hundreds of demonstrators had marched downtown to the Justice Center in protest of uh, the police murder of George Floyd. It was clear that law enforcement didn't plan ahead for the size of the crowd that they that they got. And a small faction of the group started throwing water bottles at the cops. So the police declared the entire gathering to be unlawful and issued an order to disperse. And a review later determined that no one could hear that order before the police began launching the chemical spray and the pepper balls and the less lethal bullets and basically agitated the crowd into a total frenzy that turned into a riot. Uh, Corey Schaefer's story details the injuries that people sustained and what these unlawfully jailed people endured. It, it's, uh, it's a good read. Uh, check it out, cleveland.com. It'll be interesting to see how much this costs taxpayers to uh, to handle all of the alleged misbehavior. Uh, it'll 
I'm betting that most of this will settle and not go to trial. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did Cleveland Municipal Court have to abruptly cancel the first trial scheduled since the pandemic began? Lord Johnston, nobody wants to work. Jurors don't want to work. People don't want to work. Jail guards don't want to work. What do you do if you're a court and you can't get jurors to come in? Apparently, you postponed the trial because only 12 of the 75 jurors showed up on Thursday. This was the first time they were going to have a trial in the municipal court. They need at least 17 potential jurors in order to seat this jury because they have eight jurors and one alternate. And the prosecution and defense each get to dismiss four potential jurors during selection. The court can also declare some potential jurors ineligible for a variety of reasons if they know someone involved in the case or have a bias. And so Judge Sweeney asked the assistant city prosecutor and the defense attorney if they would be willing to waive their right to dismiss jurors. Neither agreed. So this trial about a military veteran charged with assaulting his neighbor is delayed until July 29th. So they hope they have an answer about this then. They they have about 12 or 13 jury trials annually. That's not a huge number, obviously. And the court has a bunch of safety measures they put in place. They've got the plexiglass barriers. They were limiting the number of trials, blocking off seats. But obviously, though we don't know why people didn't show up, um, I mean, the COVID has to play a huge role in that. And I mean, it was Memorial Day weekend. But it's against the law. If you get summoned, you have to show up or else you can be found in contempt. Did Was there any talk about the judge seeking redress with the people that just ignored their jury summons? They didn't say anything to Corey Schaefer, a reporter, about that specifically. And I, you know, I, I don't think they want to go off on the uh, offensive right now. What was interesting was that this dozen jurors that showed up were evenly divided between men and women. Eight were black, four were white, and they were a mix of younger, middle aged, and older residents. You can't even like point to one group of people and saying, okay, they're shirking their duty. I mean, they got a very representational, representational pool, but just not enough of them. Fascinating. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the months ahead. Uh, I mean, you can't have jury trials if you don't have jurors. No. Uh, and, you know, we all dread getting the call, but I think when we've been called, we've What's shown up. Interesting is the judge said, you know, maybe childcare or not being able to take off work factored in. And at least she's like thinking about why people might not have been able to work, which is more than you can say about a lot of these industries. Yeah, that's true. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why did the city of Cleveland fire four police officers late last week? Leila Tassi, we don't often see the Cleveland police firing officers. What were the uh, the wrongs they committed to deserve such treatment? Yeah, this was interesting. Four were fired. One was suspended. The records were kind of scant on the details, but here's what we know. In the first case, uh, Michael Guion failed to investigate or make a report on a domestic violence that was reported on March 4th, 2020. Guion was also suspended for eight days in 2019 after his second drunken driving conviction in two years. Then in the second case, Katrina Ruma, she's been on the force for 22 years. She was fired for several offenses. The first was uh, for a misdemeanor out of the Ravenna Municipal Court when she let her dog off her property in August. So few details here. (laughs) She also was accused of using a recording device in the women's locker room and failing to cooperate with the investigation of that incident. And also they say that she abused her sick time and was generally insubordinate uh, on several occasions. Then in the third case, Samuel Ortiz, a 13-year veteran with CPD, he was fired for failure to give medical care to a woman who had said she swallowed some pills. 
He's also accused of using force on a person to try to influence the person for his personal benefit and then lying about it. We don't know more about that, but uh, very interesting. And then in the next case, Shanae Dantazin, in September 2019, she sent an Instagram message to a man whose photo appeared at the district's office then labeled him a threat to law enforcement. And she told the man to be careful, according to the disciplinary records. Sounds like it was probably a threat. Um, Dantazen later admitted to internal affairs investigators that she believed the man was involved in gang activity. But the records don't say why she sent the message to the man. Uh, and then in the case of the officer who was suspended, Salvatore Santillo, he was suspended for a November 2019 incident in which he illegally stopped and searched someone without probable cause. He failed to de-escalate the situation and use unnecessary force on the person who was passively resisting. He then appeared to lie when instructing a new officer how to write a ticket for the incident and refused to give the person his name or badge number. So, of course, you know, the police union says none of these people deserve punishment and that they'll fight their firings or suspensions. What I think is interesting is that some of these cases are kind of dated. I mean, you know, they go back a couple of years. Why does it take so long to complete these internal investigations? That I feel like that yeah. uh, that's that's really shouldn't we have resolved this by now? <laughs> I mean, well, and the, the other thing that what kind of stinks about this, they dropped this on us at like 530 on Friday before Memorial Day weekend. Uh, if you're disciplining officers like this, I, you would think they'd be somewhat proud of the fact that they're taking care of business but when you flush something out at 5 30 on the friday before memorial day you're hoping no one notices but of we course. did <laughs> you're listening to this week in the cla how can your barbecue grill brush kill you laura johnston you you came at me with this one last week and i thought you were pulling my leg just playing a prank on me and then you kept sending me evidence that your grill brush can kill you so do tell this is really creepy and I didn't know anything about it till I saw it on Facebook um, of a friend who was writing about a friend who had died actually. And so grill brush bristles can accidentally be ingested and cause internal injuries. They will perforate your gastrointestinal tract and cause death if they get infected. And so, yeah, that's a really scary idea. They just they get inside the burger. Um, between 2002 and 2014, 1,700 Americans ingested these wire bristles in the grilled food. They went to the emergency room. In Canada, they've actually tightened standards for these grill brushes, put a warning on them. And I was talking to a couple of people about this this weekend. Some people had never heard of it. Other people were like, yeah, that's why you wipe you know, your grill down with a paper towel and olive oil before you cook on it after you gr brush it off. But it's one of those things that we, I hope people can be aware of. So you just like know it's possible. Yeah, I was I was giving my grill brush the evil eye as I barbecued this weekend <laughs> because, of, because of that story. So can I wait? Can I jump in here for a second? Yeah, I, I over the weekend I told my husband about this and he was like, "Yeah, duh. That's why we don't use a a brush. We use." And he tells me about this, you know, some kind of Brillo pad on a. I mean, he uses a wireless brush to brush off or grill well, for this is, exact reason. He is on top of it. You should feel well, very safe. Well, I think protected. it's probably, I think as I'm thinking of it, he, so he's a nurse uh, in the, uh, mm. at the Cleveland clinic who, who, uh, you know, does, uh, um, sees a lot of, of esophagectomies and things like that. So I think maybe that's what his heightened uh, vigilance about grill brushes is, is attributable to. <laughs> All right. Well, we're definitely in barbecue season. So people have been warned. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, we're back. Thank you for everybody that listens to this podcast. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. We will return tomorrow.